I'm Josh Cooperman, and this is Convo by Design, with a return to the 2019 edition of West Edge Design Fair and a clever conversation about Frank Lloyd Wright. Around the time I was writing panel concepts for the Convo by Design Programming Lounge at West Edge, I saw a movie that posed the question, what would the world be like if only one person remembered the Beatles? Maybe you saw that movie too. It, it made me think, what was Frank Lloyd Wright's impact beyond the work itself? And that's exactly what was pondered and explored by this incredible panel. The panel features Margaret Bach, of Margaret Bach Design, Carlo Cacavalli, uh, Executive Director at American Institute of Architects, David Coffey, Director of the Design Thinking Academy, and Michael Lehrer of Lehrer Architects. This group of luminaries is led by moderator and educator Carol Bishop, who masterfully navigates this idea in a conversation called Modern World, Life Without Frank Lloyd Wright. Convo by Design is presented by Walker Zanger a fantastic company and an equally fantastic design partner. While the Walker Zanger brand was built on the promise to inspire designers and architects to do their best work, there's far more to it than that. Yes, that promise is fulfilled every day through a commitment to provide the best ceramic, glass, stone, porcelain, and concrete surfaces and finishes. But at the heart is a family-owned and operated business that provides stunning surfaces for a well-designed home and does it to make designers and architects do their best work for their clients. Walker Zanger started in 1952, and they are absolutely one of the best trade partners a designer can have. Check out their newest collaborative line with designer Pieta Donovan, a collection of cement and ceramic tiles inspired by the patterns and colorways of the 1970s and created with a comfortable modernity. Walker Zanger is on the cutting edge of design, featuring products for every style and architectural feel you can create. And they provide homeowners with the materials that dream kitchens and baths are made of. Check out any of their 14 showrooms across the country or shop online, walkerzanger.com. Good morning, everyone. I'm Megan Riley, and I want to welcome you to West Edge Design Fair 2019. I want to thank Convo by Design for collaborating on our programming schedule and this beautiful space that we're in. Uh, Convo by Design has been a media partner of ours for four years now, and this area has been a collaborative design with Julia Wong, who's furnished our stage, as well as three interior designers who have great little vignettes in the back, as you'll see. So we have Kevin Isabel, Studio Akiko, and John McLean Design. So we hope you enjoy this space and uh, invite you to come back throughout the day for other great programs that we've got going on here. Um, and without further ado, I want to introduce our, our first panel this morning, uh, Modern World Life Without Frank Lloyd Wright, moderated by Carol Bishop of Form Magazine, and thank Form Magazine for being a, a media partner, a returning media partner of ours. So Carol, I'll turn it over to you to introduce our speakers this morning. Welcome. Today we're here to discuss the legacy of Frank Lloyd Wright, America's most noted architect and designer. His buildings have recently been designated by the UNESCO World Heritage, including our own L.A. Hollyhock House. But does his influence continue to linger in the work of today's designers, artists, and urban thinkers? Our panelists come from varied design disciplines, 
in order to discuss this issue and Wright's influence on current projects and philosophies. I'm gonna ask everybody to hold your questions for our Q&A. And um, on our panel, we have Michael Lair, immediately to my left. Next is Margaret Bach. Next is David Coffey. And last but not least is Carlo Cacavalli. And the first question is, can you uh, give us a little background on yourselves and your professions or um, some biography. Michael, you want to start? Um, so I, I'm an architect. Uh, I'm the founding partner of Lair Architects Los Angeles and Silver Lake. I am a native son of Los Feliz and Silver Lake and have uh, only 12 of my 65 years have not been lived in, in that neighborhood. Um, I began my practice in 1985. We have a broad range of institutional projects, everything from uh, housing and serving the homeless to homes for rich people and museums and religious institutions and so forth. Um, where I live and grew up is fundamental to my existence and identity as an architect. Uh, I'm a first-generation American, but we have five generations that have in my family that have lived in Los Feliz. And this week, we are celebrating my mother, who came here as a refugee in 1938 from Vienna. Um, we're celebrating her 100th birthday. And in terms of roots and right, um, sort of Vienna and Europe and growing up in Los Feliz sort of are part of my DNA. Margaret. Yes. Um, well, I'm currently um, the sole proprietor of Margaret Bach Design. I have a small interior design studio which focuses on residential, although I do some other things as well. Um, but my background is, is really more diverse than that um, in documentary film, in historic preservation. Um, my, some of my most, and I'll just, you'll hear my voice. It might cut out at some point, but I'm, I'm going to give it a try. Um, in the early 70s, um, my husband and I participated in what was really a life-changing experience, which was the restoration of Irving Gill's Horatio West Court in Santa Monica in Ocean Park. And that was a great adventure, which really kind of cemented my, my passion for, for design, for architectural history, and um, for, <clears throat> in a sense, practicing what you preach. Um, I'm the founding president of the LA Conservancy and was um, one of the leaders in the fight to save the Bertram Goodhue Central Library. I live in Santa Monica and um, I'll tell you a little bit more about my, my background in connection with some of the other questions that are going to be uh, asked. Uh, my name is David Coffey. Professionally, I own a, a commercial office furniture company, Crosley Resource Group, and uh, practice in Los Angeles as well as Bakersfield, where I'm based. Um, I own the 1937 Richard Neutra Davis House in Bakersfield, and then I'm the steward of the 1959 Ablin House by Fl Frank Lloyd Wright. I also founded a, a program called Bakersfield Built, which is a program that focuses on uh, the built environment and more towards a modern bent in Bakersfield. We just had a very successful event in September. Um, and I'm a member of the SAHSCC. I'm on the board there, the uh, Southern California chapter of architectural historians with CN Winship. Who's, um, 
And I think that's probably it. I'm originally from Cincinnati, Ohio, lived in LA for 17 years, and then went to Bakersfield chasing the Neutra House, which I got. Good morning, everybody. My name is Carlo Caccavale. I am the executive director of the American Institute of Architects in Los Angeles. I have been with the chapter for 15 years now. And uh, as executive director for the last uh, three, um, the American Institute of Architects, of course, is an umbrella organization that uh, uh, supports the fantastic work of all of our members, of which Michael is a, a fellow of. And uh, um, as an organization, uh, we pride ourselves for uh, um, celebrating and promoting uh, both great contemporary architecture as well as a more traditional and uh, historic architecture that um, creates the uh, um, texture of the city from, uh, from, uh, uh, from more a more traditional standpoint. Great. So um, my first question, I'm going to uh, start with Michael. When and where did you become aware of Wright's work? So, uh, as I said, I was born and bred and live in Los Feliz. So as a child, Vermont was, as it is today, but wasn't for a long time, a very vibrant commercial street. So we would go shopping, I would go with my mother shopping, and you'd look up Vermont, and there was this big fortress in Griffith Park, which I had no idea what it was, but it was the dominating architecture and thing and that, uh, you know, I found out later was the Ennis House. I was in third grade at Franklin Avenue Elementary School when a, a girl I was in love with brought blueprints of a high school her father designed. And when I saw those blueprints, um, I decided that that was going to, that was it. I was going to be an architect. Within a year or two, I, I, I think I read my first Frank Lloyd Wright book and I would look at his drawings and I would stare at them and they gave me endless pleasure, uh, complete seduction. Uh, I tried from then to this very day, every day when I put my pen to paper and I print, I'm a happy person. Frank Lloyd Wright's printing was also a seduction for me. I got my first drafting table when I was about 12 and did drawings imitating his uh, Roby house, his Mile High skyscraper, and, uh, and it has never changed. On the other hand, when I was in graduate school in 1977, uh, 75 to 77, 78, uh, at Harvard, it was, Frank Lloyd Wright was hyper unfashionable. Um, for the Cor it was still Corbusiana, Le Corbusier, and one of my professors was a disciple of Le Corbusier, had worked for him, and he didn't even consider Frank Lloyd Wright an architect. So uh, these things come and go, but the, the DNA uh, from, uh, from Wright uh, to me, uh, uh, in terms of to this day when I look at his drawings, when I look at his buildings, they there is a sublime uh, pleasure, and it, it, I feel it's, it's, it's hardwired. Great. Maggie, what was your experience? Well, <clears throat> I'm the daughter of an architect. Um, my father, whose name was Reinhard Lesser, practiced um, architecture beginning in Chicago, where I was born, and then in the San Fernando Valley, where we moved in the early 50s. I think I learned about Frank Lloyd Wright really almost in utero because I think he was very 
important to my father in his architectural philosophy and development. The house that my father built um, for us in the San Fernando Valley was kind of, I think, Usonian in spirit um, with features such as natural materials, concrete slab floors, radiant heat, indirect lighting, um, kind of a hybrid perhaps between a Usonian house and a, um, a, a California ranch. But later on, in the late 50s, my father designed, and we were super proud of him, he designed a bank on Santa Monica Boulevard in West LA, still there, corner of Butler and Santa Monica Boulevard. And he employed, he designed a, tech, a textile block with the letters BOA embedded in it. And we thought that was just, you know, just a supreme, wonderful, not just tribute to Frank Lloyd Wright, but also a tribute to my father's architectural sensibility. So that's kind of my very personal connection with, with Wright, not to mention the fact that I've, you know, s seen many of his buildings and um, had a kind of, vis had a visit with my father to the Guggenheim in the 60s, which was also very impactful, personal. David, what do you um, have in your background? Well, in my background, so my background's radio, really in electronic media. I have a degree in radio, TV, and film, so I don't have a formal education in architecture, but I moved to Los Angeles in 1985, and soon after that visited Hollyhock. So that was the first in interaction. And then later in the 90s, I worked for Steelcase, the office furniture company, um, calling on architects and designers. And it was my horrible responsibility to take the corporate jet, fill it with my friends, and go to Grand Rapids, Michigan, and have dinner at the Meyer May House. And so, from 1908. So I spent a lot of time in that house, which really stoked the fire and deepened my understanding and appreciation for Wright. And then in 2009, uh, I was approached by the owner of the Ablin House with my partner, Josette Koyamjin, to take on the Wright House in Bakersfield, like, the Neutra, you know, like we do with the Neutra. And uh, uh, so I, I fell off the, the Wright truck into Neutra, but um, still have a real fond, fondness and appreciation and a, and a deep, deep uh, passion for, for Wright as well. Carlo, how about you? Well, um, I was in a movie theater in London in 1983, uh, and I, watch, I was watching Blade Runner, and uh, there is a beautiful scene in which Harrison Ford comes back home, uh, and the house is the Ennis house. And I was like, what is that? Where is it? And I need to go and see this place. However, it wasn't until a few years later I actually stepped inside the Ennis house. My first approach with a, a direct approach uh, with Frank Wright was through the Guggenheim Museum in New York. That was my first trip to the United States. And when I moved to Los Angeles and I um, actually started working for the AIA Los Angeles, one of my goals was to uh, allow people actually to enjoy the Ennis house. So the Ennis house was not for, you know, was not open to the public, it still isn't, it was privately owned. Uh, and uh, when uh, Ron Barkle purchased the house, I called all the way to London. Uh, I, I called London, I called his office, I uh, 
persisted and I got basically uh, into uh, connecting with uh, his assistant who directed me to uh, the team that was actually operating renovation at the Ennis house. They put me in touch with them, I went in. It was the most uh, thrilling moment of my architectural life, so to speak. And uh, I kind of like muscled my way in and forced them to open the house for AIA tours twice a year. And we went on with that for about four or five years. It was amazing. It was uh, just an incredible experience. Well, I'm going to stay with you, Carlo, to um, answer the next question. Uh, Frank Lloyd Wright famously looked to ancient cultures for ideas, old music, ancient monuments, recycled styles. And these are currently ways to revisit the past and invigorate today's cultures. Examples such as film, advertisements, or even the reboot of the Volkswagen um, minibus um, brings the past into the present. Do you see any of his work being recycled or used today? Well, first of all, let me tell you that clearly um, architecture, like every other form of art, is not exempt from uh, looking at the past, basically, and uh, somehow reinventing, you know, uh, its own uh, uh, vernacular based on the past. I also think that there are two kinds of architecture, bluntly. There's good architecture and bad architecture. Good architecture is, uh, bad architecture is derivative from the past, I think, mostly, and uh, good architecture actually is interpretative and innovative with regards to the past. Um, I think Franklin Wright has been a very big source of inspiration, and Michael, maybe as an architect, can uh, say um, a few more things about that. Um, but I also, and I, you know, architecture also goes into cycles. So we're talking about work of, of architecture that are almost 100 years old that probably went through like uh, two or three cycles. And probably during, you know, when uh, modernism, the international style of modernism became very popular in Los Angeles, there was a rejection of, uh, of Frank Roy Wright that probably was seen as derivative. You know, just think about the textile um, uh, built houses that we have in Los Angeles, you know, the Mayan inspiration. Uh, it's a little theatrical. I mean, actually, it's very theatrical. There's a lot of drama in this, in this which was completely on the opposite end of uh, what modernism was standing for, simplicity in lines and uh, the approach to the outdoor and everything else. I think that it was, Frank Rorario has been reevaluated through um, media, uh, through um, movies a lot, uh, through the uh, this idea also of the 80s probably um, um, about like uh, flair in architecture um, uh, you know the impact of Frank Lloyd Wright in a way uh, I can see similitudes in the theatrical element of his architecture I don't know exactly if any uh, new designer will aspire to become a Frank Lloyd Wright at this specific moment but I think that culturally his impact is now stronger than ever and uh, with, uh, with the UNESCO recognizes, recognizing a lot of his works as, uh, as you know like world heritage, uh, I think, you know, that just proves that uh, his impact right now is really, really huge. Anybody else want to? I, I might just say that in terms of his relevance today, um, I would agree with Carlo that um, there may be no young emerging architects who are aspiring to be a Frank Lloyd Wright. In fact, I think it would be impossible. Um, he was he was a really one of a kind and really did um, emerge I think from a kind of 19th century mindset a sensibility of of um, celebrating the land celebrating individualism um, celebrating nature and yet those themes I think are highly relevant today so if not architectural forms per se 
um, especially, I think, looking back at his ideas about um, the need for architecture to really respond to the sort of the human, the individual, um, and declaring the importance of connection to the land, which, of course, is an increasingly difficult challenge in our urban environment. But recognizing that and sort of inspiring work on the basis of that, I think, is perhaps an enduring legacy or one that could be recaptured if we turned our attention again to him. You are listening to a conversation about what it would be like without Frank Lloyd Wright. And we're going to get back to it in a moment, but first, this. Top designers know this. If you are going to get to the top of your game and stay there, you need strong partners. You hear me talking about partnerships all the time. I've spoken to enough amazing creatives to know that teamwork and strong partnerships are invaluable. Bassman Blaine is a multifaceted home furnishings company with a passion for helping designers do their best work. They represent some of the finest vendors on the planet, and if you are a design professional in California, Nevada, Arizona, or Hawaii, you need to let them help you find the perfect pieces for your projects. Strong partnerships start with a good conversation, and I want to encourage you to start one now with Darby Cooperman, an absolute pro. If the last name sounds familiar... It's no coincidence, Darby and I have been married for 28 years, so I know her, and I know that she can help you. So email Darby, Darby C, D-A-R-B-Y, the letter C, at BassmanBlaine.com. Let her help you specify products for your amazing designs. All right, and tell her I said hi. Hey, uh took your question slightly differently, uh, and I was thinking about what his sources were, because I think you referred to sort of ancient sources. I actually think that the turn of the 20th century, I mean, for me, it's one of my favorite periods, and uh, uh, there was Frank Lloyd Wright, there was Charles Rennie McIntosh, there was Joseph Hoffman and Wagner, and Aubrey Beardsley, and there was, there was something about attenuated composition and attenuated line that and and even a notion of abstraction and a fair amount of ornamentation that Wright grew out of and that that remained and I think that there's an interesting um, model in there. I I think that, for instance, for me, I I don't think anybody would necessarily look at my buildings and say, "Wow, you're a neo Wrightian," but. For the, the principles learned and absorbed uh, from Frank Lloyd Wright in terms of profession, in terms of manipulation of scale, in terms of, again, I think one of the, for me one of the most important, and it's, it's idiosyncratic, is sort of the attenuated line, the heavily foreshortened spatial processional experience, or the way Wright almost always figure out a way, whether it's with a building or a garden wall, to connect to the landscape and to uh, dialogue sort of the, the, the horizontal with topography. I mean, those are abstract, powerful things that Wright was the master, and you go to, you, you go to his buildings and those lessons continue to resonate in, in a, I mean, I say for me, I think, without necessarily being derivative, those are powerful, fundamental lessons from Wright. 
David, do you see anything? Well, I, I would just piggyback on that and say yes. And if you look at his work, the, the horizontal is everything, which which was something that was new, that, that does continue today. Um, and the idea of the unified whole, of, of everything Absolutely. being controlled. I mean, there was, you know, we discussed uh, earlier about... Uh, it being too controlling, but I, I, I disagree with that. I think it's, it's appropriately controlling. And in the spirit of things today, I don't think you're looking at details in buildings that are writing in today, but I think you're certainly looking at concepts of, you know, the great room certainly comes directly from Wright in contemporary houses. Um, and then the, the idea of doing product design, architects doing product design, doing seating, doing, uh, Michael Graves took it to a whole new level, but you, you have Frank Geary doing furniture. You, you, know, you have architects that do furniture and do more about the entire space than just the architecture. And I think that comes directly from Wright. I would just like to um, throw in another idea, going back to the idea of what Wright's sources were. I think he really emerged, despite the fact that he did not, he, denied, he would deny it from the arts and crafts movement, especially the American arts and crafts movement. If you look at his early interiors, the ingle nook, the, the hearth, the, um, the colors, the sort of low-slung horizontality that you saw in the Craftsman magazine and the work of Gustav Stickley and the others who emerged from the American arts and crafts movement. He used Stickley furniture in his early hounds before he, he started designing his own. So he also did that in the end. I mean, his, I mean you know, in the late 50s after the Guggenheim, I mean, whether it's Marin County or the buildings in Florida, you know, they were fair, fair, you know, there was uh, a lot of ornament, if you will, right? <laughs> well, Maggie, I want you to um, elaborate on this because um, you do work with interiors quite a bit. And um, when Wright designed the interiors and furniture of his buildings, he was adamant that the client should change absolutely nothing. They couldn't move anything in their spaces. Um, what do you think about this? Well, Frank Lloyd Wright could do it. That's, <laughs> that's not the practice of a contemporary interior designer, uh, uh, interior designer today. Why not? If Frank insisted, I would say, go for it. I mean, certainly his, his designs were Gesamtkunst works. They were really totalities. He paid attention to every detail. So he talked about the difficult, in his writings, he talks about the difficulty of assimilating beloved objects of his clients into his homes. And, and he, he, the quote is this in The Natural Home, but such assimilation is extraordinarily difficult, better in general, to design all interior features. So that was his, his philosophy. I, I think his most successful homes show that. I can't argue with him. The total design concept was key to his genius. Um, even though he also admits to his failures, his early furniture designs, he said he has plenty of black and blue marks from sitting in those early chairs. So he had a, he had a little sense of humor about that. In terms of my own practice, 
um, we're given spaces, pre-existing spaces, pre-existing environments. So my goal as a designer is to create, you know, harmonious in interior experiences um, for diverse clientele. There's no single design response, although the underlying goals of harmony, organic flow, color story, and sequencing of experience, which I think are Wrightian principles, they're certainly um, something that drives my own work. Michael, do you, can you pull it off? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Frank Lloyd Wright was Frank Lloyd Wright, and thank God he was. I, I, I think a lot of his buildings and a lot of his homes I'm not sure how fun they would be in to live in, actually, and, but I don't really think about that too much. As an architect, one, I mean, first of all, it's what is the nature of what you're controlling? I mean, at the end of the day, you want to control the spatial experience, and there are many ways to do it, getting down to the, you know, the overall experience might be so bold that you don't have to uh, do every detail. In our projects, particularly our public projects, we really like to put in built-in furniture um, because it gives scale, it's very useful, and it makes, it makes the projects always feel inhabitable. I think in Wright's projects, um, they're often, you know, a lot of those rooms, like in the Hollyhock house, I mean, the, in the living room, the furnishing is absolutely fundamental to the architecture. Um, you know, and so life happens, and you know, I mean, I think that's the struggle when you design. Uh, if you give up too much control, you may end up with nothing of consequence, nothing that, you know, moves people's souls, which, you know, first it's got to work, and then it's got to move people's souls. I mean, that's really the agenda. Otherwise, kind of, who cares? So that's the dance, and you know, you struggle with it, and hopefully you get it right more often than you don't. David, you uh, actually spend time in um, a Frank Lloyd Wright house. So um, what is that like? As a user, I appreciate his control. As a, as a user, um, you know, if we, we build a house or we live in houses, you know, the average American probably doesn't live in more than 10 houses in their lifetime. And a professional like, like Michael will do thousands of projects. So who better to dictate that? than someone who's experienced. So I, I, I have a different take on it in that I think that it's difficult with clients because I think clients um, don't always know and rarely do they know what they really want. And I think it's this dance between an architect or an interiors professional that needs to be, and as Michael said, you can't let it get too watered down be, with the client. You have to dance. To have a good project, you have to have a good client. But I think that we've, we've allowed, in a lot of domains, we've let allowed people that have just opinions of what things are to dictate what gets done. And I, not to say that I think architects and designers have become soft, but I think they have out of economic necessity sometimes that, that the client has too much say in a project when an architect or a designer really does know much more about what the outcome should be. And I think with interiors, that's the last thing that a client sees, and it's so important. And oftentimes, it's the last thing on a project that the client values. And so my, as a, as a vendor, my console to, to clients is, 
I don't know. Ask your architect, ask your interiors person, work with them. They've done this thousands of times and listen to them. Because a good architect or a good interiors person is like a novelist who takes the whole story for, through the space so that you don't go into one room and it doesn't relate to the next. And so I appreciate that. Even Neutra was very masterful. And there aren't choices where the bed goes, where the, where the, the, you know, the dresser is. It's built in. And thank God it is because it's a much better experience than a kid from Cincinnati just thinking I know what I'm doing. So, I have had many, pro- not many, I've had projects diminished. I wouldn't quite say destroyed, but dramatically diminished by furnishing coming in that we lost control. And when you say that it's, I mean, and you know, the issues of control and, and right as a model, uh, furnishing comes at the end of the job and it's at the time when you have virtually no chits left with your client. By, you know, long before the end of the job, most clients are so sick of their architects <laughs> because it's such a long, dramatic, emotional roller coaster over such a long period of time. And, you know, you're also, you both respect and are sick of this person. And, like, you want it? Mm, I'm going to talk to somebody else just because you want it and I'm sick of you. I mean, it happens. But, but that's the problem. Of, it's the last 5% of a project that can make or break what happens. And so uh, where I can see as a professional, you're exhausted. You're wrung out by the client. It, it's really, you, like you said, a lot of projects can just fall apart. I would also see that probably there were less, you know, less, a smaller number of interior designers at the time, and uh, so less of a market to uh, shop around. I think that right now clients are much more aware of what architecture is and what interior design might be and might entail. And uh, I also think it all depends on personality. I think that Frank Rai was the first star architect, basically. You know, we have a few now, but he was probably the first one. He was flamboyant in uh, every single aspect of his life. He was a dictator. And uh, his, uh, his rule was, if you want me, basically you shut up and, uh, and do what I tell you to do, down to the last uh, detail of the last piece of furniture I'm going to put in this house. So I think it's all, it was also a matter of personality, but also the fact that the system allowed people like him to flourish because of uh, simply less competition and the fact that less people could afford actually an architect in the end. Well, you've spent a lot of time in the Ennis house. Could you live there? I absolutely would love to live there. So I don't know who purchased the house, but if you want to make a person happy, please come to me and, uh, and I will live there and manage the house and make sure that it's uh, absolutely preserved. <laughs> Even with uh, the, the, the condition of not really having your own personality in the house. Um, when we were two in the house and I was also docenting, one of our architects, Deborah Weintraub, uh, she mentioned something that really stuck with me. She would say, what must it feel like to wake up here? And I was like thinking, I thought about it all the time. I was like, wow, what would it be like to wake up, you know, in the Hennis house, in that bedroom, you know, looking up at the vaulted, you know, um, ceiling and uh, opening up the window, looking at Los Angeles and just like breathing in this, this, this incredible presence, basically, right? Um, I'm going to ask about um, the huge division of wealth in America and especially in L.A., here, uh, where buying a house or buying furniture is unattainable for many, many people. And also in California, especially LA, we have a huge homeless crisis. Can we look to Wright's Usonian vision 
to give affordable, beautiful designs to the middle class. How do you handle this issue in your work or philosophy? I'm going to start with um, David because uh, your furniture is pricey. <laughs> Uh, it can be, but I, I look at myself as a curator, so we, I like to find things. I mean, I, I, I have this conversation in, in a lot of areas. You can go to into almost, at this point, you can go to almost any place and find something decent. You, you could go to Target and find something that's honest and clean and, and looks okay and would be functional. So, uh, um, yes, I, I don't think that design is, is dependent upon cost necessarily and I think there's a lot of secondary market product if you want to talk about a true green story and my partner Joe Setts big on this with with sustainability in the fashion industry but even in the furniture industry there's nothing wrong with an Eames chair that's 30 years old um, it can be a lot less expensive or there's you know there's so much furniture in the world that can that's that can be repurposed so I think that's the democratization. If there's any democracy in this, it's that you, you yeah, if you want to look at like the, the top shelf things, certainly. We're not going to find this, what we're sitting in, at, at an affordable price. However, I think if you tweak your, the lens that you're looking at, at things through, you can always find things that, that are appropriate. We are working on a lot of uh, projects uh, for the recently or formerly homeless, and we also in the last years have done several single-family uh, homes, affordable homes in South LA and developed prototypes. I have to say it never occurred to me to specify a piece of furniture by Frank Lloyd Wright, but what I would say, the lessons of Wright, which are absolutely relevant for every home and every unit, are that all surfaces matter, that scale and proportion are hyper-important. I mean, those are lessons from, from right, sometimes in extremists, but scale and proportion. You have a tiny, when you have a 300-foot uh, unit, you know, how you manipulate scale, how do you have seamless indoor-outdoor living, uh, whether you're on the ground floor or above. I mean, those are lessons that, and, and the ground plane is a lesson both from right and from landscape architecture. I mean, this is a lesson I, absorbed early uh, as a, even as an architecture student that when Wright would do his architectural drawings <coughs> he would design the ground plane of a building that would reflect the deeper architectural order but it would be manifest in the design so when I say every surface matters the ground the walls the windows and uh, and scale and proportion um, yeah I, I just wanted to throw in a couple additional comments of f just to reflect on the Usonian vision and the Usonian house, were they middle class houses? I'm not sure. Would we call them middle class houses today? I'm not sure. They were pretty much one offs, and I know Wright did attempt some larger scalable projects, which he's not the only one who, was, who had little success with that. But I think that there, as you say, there are other ways of channeling the Usonian ideal, the idea of, of unity, of nature, of connections to nature. And I think some of those principles could even be absorbed in more mass housing projects of how, how the light comes into a room, what its proportions are, materials certainly, um, and also the the import of greenery, the, the notion of reinforcing connections 
to the earth, to nature. I think those are underlying principles that, that still have relevance in current projects. And I don't know, and Michael, maybe you could speak to this, but does, does a unified environment, is it more expensive? So if you had production home builders that were actually building to a cost, but with also an aesthetic sense, are those at opposite ends? Can it, can it be done? And I know people have tried to do this through prefab, et cetera, that with not much success, but could KB actually build a home that's honest and has integrity? Well, one thing that uh, is decidedly not writing about my own sensibilities, it's a little more Corbusian, is uh, I do think that, first of all, design is about value. I mean, design excellence is the, ultimately is not about what's the most you need to achieve excellence, it's achieve what's the least resource you need to achieve excellence. Well, I mean, we use other surfaces and we use other colors, but basically, if you paint everything white, if you have no other option, that's the, like, assured way of achieving unity and letting light do its thing. Um, but again, I, except for the Guggenheim, I would say, and there are probably some other examples of this I can't think of, but the Guggenheim is essentially a white building, even though it's... Well, we have one in Beverly Hills, actually, this little, like, uh, mall. It's called, uh, yes, it's called, uh, I think I wrote it. On Rodeo. It's on Rodeo Drive. I think it's called the Anderson Court Shops. And the tower is still visible, and it's really incredible. When you go inside, it's actually a spiral. You can go all the way up, and it's a mini Guggenheim, surrounded by stores that have been a little messed up now. But I just wanted to add to this bits of, of conversation. Obviously, SAA Los Angeles are extremely aware of uh, this, this huge gap, basically, in, uh, in, uh, in, you know, between the have and have-nots, and the uh, housing crisis, and the de-escalating prices that, 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 that creates uh, displacement, and ultimately homelessness. Um, in, I think Los Angeles had its own uh, Usonian um, uh, dream, in a way, during the uh, late 40s with the uh, case studies, for instance, you know, it was a process that we're trying to, att attempting to democratize the uh, architectural process. Um, but I think that right now, in honesty, I personally don't really see um, the conditions to bridge this gap as of yet. I feel like the prices are escalating, and uh, as Michael know, you know, it, it, creating basically a low-income, uh, an affordable housing unit, uh, it's up to $470,000 at this point, that's the average, which really takes it out of the, uh, of the reach of many of us, I mean, to begin with. Well, in closing, I want to know if our panelists have any concrete ways to communicate to young historians, architects, designers, and artists any of the concepts that you've personally found in right buildings. I think the best thing, I mean, if you go to the Hollyhock House, <clears throat> I mean, one of the, I've been involved, I, I took my first life drawing class at the director's house in 1968. Uh, my kids went to classes there. My sister runs the uh, Barnstall Arts Foundation. We did the, actually I was appointed by Mayor um, Bradley to be on the Barnstall Over Board of Overseers in 1989. There was a process that took the better part of 25 years to consummate in a restored building and a restored landscape. Barnstall has, and the Holly House has never in our lives, maybe probably ever, looked as beautiful as it does today. So the way you, you 
you, I, I think going to Barnstall, I mean, if you can go with someone who can sort of illuminate the landscape, the architecture, all of those things, I, I, I do, or go to the Holly, uh, go to the Ennis house, I mean, if you really want to be blown <laughs> away, I think that's going to a right building and maybe having a little guidance through it, not too much, is uh, that you can't beat that. We're, we're lucky enough to live in Los Angeles with a hugely rich architectural culture. By Gebhardt and Winter's newly reissued Guide to um, Architecture in Los Angeles. Keep it in your car. Look, explore the city. There are Wright buildings, there are Neutra buildings, there are Gill buildings, there are buildings of hundreds of architects who really have shaped this community. I would also say, read Wright's writings. They are fascinating. Well, I would piggyback on, on uh, what you just said in that uh, you, the organization that you founded, the Conservancy, is a great place to spend time. The internet is this great democracy tool that you can find out what your organization is doing, where you have access to things, and uh, obviously the hollyhock. But a lot of these homes are private, but through the internet you have access through the Conservancy. Your, your group has done a tremendous job of making things more accessible to people and, and not at an exorbitant fee either. So I, I applaud all the work that you've done. I personally think that all the uh, work that we have, frankly, right in town should be uh, accessible to the public at least a couple of times a year. I was uh, pushing for a, a personal idea that the, the city of Los Angeles should buy every single house uh, so that actually that could be open just as the Hollyhock House is open. I think that architecture is an extremely powerful form of art and it really can uh, change your, uh, your, your, your brains with regards to how you look at reality and how you look at the built environment. And uh, we should not only communicate to young designers and allow them to experience this kind of a uh, projects, but also to the public at, 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 you know, as, a, as a whole. If we want more educated people that appreciate and understand how to uh, you know, participate in the life of the city and support the development of a really healthy and beautiful city. Wow. Okay, this was a great chat. Thank you, Margaret, Carlo, David, Michael. Thank you, Carol, for navigating this strange idea and leading this excellent conversation. Thank you, Walker Zanger, for your continued support of the podcast. And thank you. Thank you for listening. Were it not for you, there would be no Convo by Design. Please make sure you are subscribed so you don't miss a single episode. You can find Convo by Design everywhere you get your favorite podcast. You can also ask your smart device to play Convo by Design. Just say, hey, Siri, play Convo by Design. And she will. If you want to continue the conversation, you can find us online, convobydesign.com. You can also uh, find us on Instagram, at convobydesign with an X. Be well, and until next week, keep creating. Mm-hmm.